around here. Captain! Signatures detected. Shield up. Signatures detected. Context Southeast Command. What's happening? Context Southeast Command. Delay that order. Context Southeast Command. This is the captain. Context Southeast Command. Get out of my chair. 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 We have engaged the Klingons. Klingons. Welcome to The Greatest Discovery, a Star Trek Discovery podcast by the makers of The Greatest Generation. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm Ben Harrison. Ben, tonight is episode seven of Star Trek Discovery, the weirdest episode we've gotten probably, right? Yeah, I think this is uh, this is definitely like if there's a, a whiteboard with a bunch of three by five cards, you know, magneted to it. In the writer's room, there's one that says, get back to our roots. <laughs> I feel like this is the episode that they uh, that they clipped that one to the top of. This is, at the same time, the weirdest Star Trek Discovery episode we've gotten, and also the most familiar Star Trek episode we've gotten, because it <laughs> it is so similar to cause and effect. If we're talking about... Uh, index cards on a cork board i think what you're what you're probably doing when you're uh breaking this story is you're making six columns right because we get six different runs at this story right and uh and i think that's probably the only way you keep the threads together right you got to keep those threads together what do you say we get into it man i think i'm pretty excited to talk this one out i am excited about it as well adam it is season one episode seven magic to make the sanest man go mad. We have engaged the Klingons. Klingons? Klingons? Those Klingons? What the hell is going on on this shit? Shit. I haven't the slightest idea. Once again, we get a, uh, a super close-up on an eye during uh, the recording of one of Burnham's captain's logs. Yeah, there were like every single episode has to start with a super close-up on an eye, except for the ones that don't. <laughs> I think we're five out of seven, right? Yeah, it's a really, it's a weirdly high number for not all. Blah, blah, blah. Michael Burnham's talking about how hard it is for her to fit in. And at the same time, talking about how grateful she is for the opportunity to have done so to the degree that she has, right? Like, she's sort of equivocating, like, it sucks to be me. I'm all alone, but... Could be worse. Could be worse. I was really surprised to see her still unranked. I felt like I was understanding a different conversation in the in the last episode about Lorca offering her a gig. I interpreted that the same way. Like, it didn't change her uniform in a way that I thought would happen. I thought she'd she'd get the uh, the version of pips that there are in this universe. Yeah, and uh, and she did not. <laughs> The end of the log segues into a party scene, and this is something that I'm excited to talk to you a little bit about, Ben, which is the way Star Trek does music. <laughs> and specifically in this scene, I feel like they do it right in terms of the song that they choose and the context in which they play it. They didn't have just an alien with noticeably cheaper loaf than normal playing a kind of a melodic series of notes on on uh marimba i gotta believe that uh that someone in at beastie boys headquarters is like drumming their fingers waiting for the phone call in the series <laughs> a call that would never come what i like about the song here is that it's not totally obvious like you could argue that the y clef jean song is 
not a top of mind cut that you would consider a classic, which it would have to be if it's played this far in the future, right? <laughs> right. Like on the on Discovery, I feel like the song comes on and everyone sort of nods at the DJ, like, yeah, like deep <laughs> cut, dude. Yeah. I'm feeling this. The needle you have to thread when you're making a science fiction television or movie thing is does everybody love the music that is contemporary and popular now? Or do they have future music that we're going to have to imagine? Um, yeah, I'm looking yeah. at you, the fifth element. <laughs> or is it like some blend of the two? This this is definitely falling in the like, uh, yeah, it's a, they listen to contemporary music. And uh, we're just not going to comment too much on that. I think it helps, too, that it is a song that is a sample of another wildly popular song. And that <laughs> that sort of combination, I think, helps. Sure. This is, a, this is a really intense scene. We get a lot of exposition here about how the war is going. I mean, and also where Ash Tyler is in the rank and social hierarchy of the ship. He gets up kind of like a little tipsy up on a table and dedicates their their chills to the 10,000 Federation uh, officers that have bought the farm in this war. He totally does that uh, President Bill Pullman from Independence Day moment. Like he, <laughs> he, he has a very rousing wartime speech here. And it's striking how few times this has ever happened in Star Trek when it hasn't been a captain rallying a bridge crew off of the ground and and summoning summoning them into into a heroic moment like this is these are just dudes below deck having that moment and I think it it rings us more powerful that way so he gets off stage and uh, is kind of like stumbling over toward Burnham and Tilly and Tilly like Tilly is on to Burnham for how much she sweats Ash Tyler and does like a really solid wingman move here, which is Ash Tyler does a mistake that I think a lot of guys have made, which is I'm too scared to talk to the girl I really want to talk to, so I'm going to talk to her friend. Yeah. And Tilly is like, nah, dog, I'm out of here. You're talking to her. <laughs> When Tilly and Michael first met Ash in the last episode, the immediate thought I had was that Tilly was going after Ash. It seems like her willingness to thrust Michael ahead of herself here, I, I think it says a lot about her too and her reticence to to form a bond with someone that she really likes. I think they're, I think Tilly and Michael are very similar in that way. Yeah, they got each other's backs. How did you feel about Tilly's party girl vibes in this scene? Uh, in what way do you mean that question? Well, I just, I feel like her, like the kind of main thing we know about her is that social interaction is not the easiest thing in the world. But in this scene, she's like playing beer pong and like, like you know, kibitzing with, with all the officers. And it seems like she is in her element in a way that we've never seen before. Ben, have you ever played feedback style beer pong? Because I haven't. This this looks like a new <laughs> variation to me that I want to try. Like where the, where the cup is is bitten and held. Yeah, I like it. It's intense. I think the, to answer that question would mean 
asking a different one, which is, are, is the crew at the party actually drunk? Right. I mean, I th- sort of think they are. Um, I felt the same way. And uh, I think one thing we learned in a, in a Bible study uh, in our other podcast, The Greatest Generation on MaximumFun.org, was that uh, the entrepreneur in that era has synthahol, which has inebriating effects that you can dismiss at a thought. So that if you're if you're like supposed to not be drunk and you need to get back to work, you can just go like, okay, I'm not drunk now. But I wonder if that exists in this era. Everything we know about Lorca and the way he runs a ship would seem to indicate that this is real booze. Yeah. And and probably pretty high proof stuff. <laughs> but like getting back to your question about Tilly being a party girl, like I I've been I've been the party boy <laughs> on occasion, you know? Like sometimes you need that that extra cup to get over the to get over yourself, you know? Sure. And that that seems like uh how she is she's treating the scene here. Okay. Fair enough. Uh were were you asking the question because you think she has a problem? No, I was asking because it seemed out of character uh yeah. in the in the moment. But I I mean, I like that uh, I like that her character is very multidimensional. You know, like so many characters of this type in television are played as the mouse who stays in their apartment while the party goes on next door and they're like irritated by how much fun everyone else is having. Uh-huh. I think it's great the Ben Harrison of characters. Sure. But for Tilly to to be the shy and also to attend the party and to attend the party while at the same time like uh imbibing to the degree that that lowers her defenses I think is great and I think it's like the sign of sort of a a multifaceted healthy person trying to make it in this crazy galaxy. <laughs> well speaking of crazy uh in Burnham's little captain's log, she mentions that Stamets has been doing more jumping and it's definitely affected his personality, but we haven't encountered him until she and Ash Tyler sort of amidst a bunch of sexual tension get called up to the bridge and they bump into Stamets in the hallways. It kind of looks like he got fired, like he like took all the stuff from his yeah. desk. <laughs> He didn't get fired, but it looks like that. And uh, they they bump into him, knocks all of his shit all over the ground, and he is in like a fully manic mode. You're always looking out for me. It's like, oh, so Stamets has completely lost his mind is kind of the impression that you get. But then you're like, not so much that he is averse to mitigating nipple trauma, because he's gotten some technological stigmata affixed to his forearms to help him interact with the spore drive in a less painful way. Helping to underscore how manic Stamets is in this scene is Culber, who is sort of like doing that thing where you're where you're walking your date home from a party that they've had too much to drink at, like sort of apologetically making excuses for them and like doing that nonverbal grimace, like, yeah, he's not really acting himself. Hopefully <laughs> you forgive us. Like that sort of thing. Right. What did he mean by that? Culper's covering, it remains to be seen whether or not he's truly irritated by this, this change that's happened 
in stamets and i'm actually looking forward to finding out uh how this is impacting their relationship because it can't be great because stamets is totally different they get up to the bridge and the starship discovery has been has been tracking a strange signal in space and when they pull up to the object that is generating the signal it is not in fact a starship but a space whale yeah they call it a gormagander it's a fun character design it's a fun creature design it's um it's more interesting than tin man i'll 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 give it that I'm liking how much this version of Star Trek is turning the universe into a, a version of the ocean that is occupied by a bunch of biological creatures and not just people flying ships around. I like that about it. This Gormagander is remarkably okay with being beamed aboard. Uh, it's, I guess they detect that it's a little sick, but uh, for a creature that lives and dies in outer space, like... Atmosphere and gravity uh, are no problem for it. <laughs> yeah, I would have expected some sort of goldfish properties being beamed away from its natural habitat. Yeah, but... it's just flopping around. And... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this thing also definitely strained their budget because <laughs> it is a CG effect that is kind of PlayStation 3 level rendering. They're like, oh man, it seems sick. It doesn't seem right. And it opens its mouth and out walks like kind of Arthur from the Tick looking spacesuit. And uh, the person in the spacesuit starts blasting everybody. Burnham barely escapes. And uh, she she radios up to Ash, telling him that this is no ordinary space whale. And uh, up on the bridge, we get like Harry Mudd taking his moth helmet off and uh, taunting Captain Lorca that he's going to take over this ship. Things really escalate quickly. Like, they radio up to the bridge, and, like, he's murdered people on his way there. Uh, they've got a big problem on their hands. The thing about Mud that we didn't know in the prison scene was that he was so stone cold. This came as a little bit of a shock to me. You, you thought he was a cracker stealer, not a, not a hardened killer. Right. But I guess that's what makes cold-blooded killers so... Uh, like, that's what makes them so effective, right? They get you into their web. Yeah. And he calls himself a con man several times in this episode, so I guess he even took us into his confidence. <laughs> I fall for it every time. <laughs> that's why you have no money. That's one of the reasons. <laughs> the other is that we dump resources into these perhaps half-baked podcast ideas before we can actually uh, tell whether they're worth doing. Worth every penny. <laughs> we have been waiting for someone worthy of our attention. What? Who are you? We encountered them. Those are Klingons? What proceeds from here is a series of time loops where Mud is more and more in control of the ship. And uh, the next time, like, like he, he blows up the ship in this, in this first one. And we see, like, an extended scene of, like, deck by deck, we see the ship come apart. And it is, it's, you know, it's one of those things where that gets a lot more elliptical with each passing iteration. There's a lot of differences each time 
we do the loop. Sometimes Ash goes in for a kiss the second he gets off stage and walks up to Michael Burnham. Sometimes Tilly is there. Sometimes she's been shooed away by other things. Yeah, this is one of the ways that this this version of this kind of storytelling is more effective to me than maybe cause and effect was because I like the idea that, you know, our stories aren't so fixed to rails. Like, like if we were to replay our lives, even the last 30 minutes, that there is hope that it would not be exactly the same every single time. Yeah. And so the idea that these that these go arounds in time are are have their subtle differences i think was really interesting to me there's a, this american life episode where they have audio from somebody who has this kind of amnesia you can get where your memory drops off every 20 or 30 minutes or something and it's like a regular interval of time and they have audio of this woman who's actually got it like asking the same questions in the same way every time God, that sounds hellish. Having heard that made me wonder if this is how it would actually go. But the idea is that Mud is aware of what's going on, and he is he is using his control over a time loop to learn things about Discovery and learn things about the way the crew behaves to you know get increasing amounts of control over the ship with each with each run. So the next time. The next time it loops, he does not hop out of the whale's mouth in a spacesuit. He is like already in the engineering section, like trying to trying to clamp things onto his own nipples. If this episode is a version of Groundhog Day, uh, Mud is the Bill Murray character, and the spore drive is Andy McDowell. Like <laughs> his his mission for being is is figuring out how the spore drive works so that he can sell the discovery to the klingons as if a ship were sellable like this 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 entire concept is is fairly new to me in in the star trek universe and stamets is ned ryerson obviously <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's he's like he's kind of got like dual dual goals of revenging himself to Captain Lorca and Ash Tyler, who left him to rot in the Klingon prison, but also getting a great come up with the Klingons, who, you know, I'm Harry Mudd. I've spent some time around the Klingons. I might consider not hanging out with them or doing business with them. Yeah, may not be able to be trusted. Also, may have some PTSD, uh having to do with his his long imprisonment why is he doing this yeah i mean we spent a lot of time in the last episode thinking about how hard recovering from that uh would be for Lorca. Lorca doesn't get much screen time in this episode other than to get wasted several dozen times <laughs> and that was a really fun montage yeah seeing, <laughs> seeing those played in a row I am not enjoying the Orville, but one thing I will say in the Orville's favor is that there are a bunch of times when they are copying an idea from TNG and they will do the thing that you kind of wish TNG would do, which is like, oh, that would be funny if, you know, they showed him dying six times. This is that, you know? Right, right. It's very satisfying to see all of these things go to their full conclusion. Heavy. Stamets has a problem. He is, because of his interaction with the tardigrade, 
perceiving the time loop over and over again in the same way Mud is. He kind of exists in this fourth dimensional way where he is outside of time. And he's got to convince Michael Burnham that what he's saying about time looping is true because she is not perceiving it. Like Mud and Stamets are the only people perceiving it, which is which is also fun. Like I would say that of the like four or five times TNG had a similar premise to this, our main character for the episode is always the one that is perceiving how weird everything is. Yeah. And in this, Michael Burnham is definitely the central character of the episode, but it's about her being convinced by Stamets and like how does she get convinced? Unfortunately, the strategy, the strategy he suggests is is a smart one and one that, you know, is pretty is a pretty standard literary trope, which is tell me a secret that nobody else would know so that I can spit it at you to like get authenticity next time the loop comes around. And the secret she tells him is so bad. It's that she's never been she's never been in love. That's not a secret. Most people could guess that. Yeah, like, it should be like, I peed my pants in front of Harry Jackson when I was four years old, and I've been embarrassed about it ever since. Yeah, so you're saying that the secret should have been a thing that had happened and not a state of her being? Right. It it needs to have, like, verifiable details that only she would know, you know? If you had to guess something about Michael... And you only had three guesses at, <laughs> as to what her sec- her deepest secret was. I feel like with a reasonable amount of tries, you would you would have guessed never been in love, or a version of that, which I thought was uh, still a virgin, never been kissed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because this is a television program, this gambit works, and so. Once they've got this protocol in place, she's like more and more bought into the stuff Stamets tells her with each passing iteration. And I, I guess they sort of paint it as though this is happening like dozens and dozens of times. We get the six, so there's some, there's you know, from instance to instance, there's some there's some reps. And one thing that is happening both for Stamets and for Mud is that. With every rep, they like know more about the mechanics of what's going on. They've tried and failed at a few things, so they know what to do and what not to do. Yeah, and while Mud feels like he's the sole operator of the space-time continuum, Stamets has an advantage because he is laying back in the cut. Like he has not been discovered yet as someone who can who can ride between times. It's surprising that Mud is not wise to this, right? I guess it's hard to know why he would think that. If he does not understand how the spore drive works and doesn't understand the tar- the tardigrade and its relationship to the universe, like there's no way that he would surmise that Stamets's relationship to the spore drive would have unlocked him from time in this way. Like be- because the mystery to to Mud the whole time is how does this thing work? You know, this episode winds up being as much about Burnham and Tyler having crushes on each other as it is about, you know, solving the time loop with Harry Mudd. Right. And we get some some different versions of them interacting that, you know, span the gamut between totally 
palpable tension that you could cut with a knife and like actually dancing and smooching. One of my favorite moments in the episode was uh, he comes up to Burnham during the party in one of the in one of the loops and asks her to dance. And she's like, we don't have time for that. And he just has like a great take where it's clear that he thinks that she's suggesting that they they cut right <laughs> to knocking boots. And I'm just like, I'm really a, appreciating Shazad Latif's performance in this part. Like, I think he's really good. Yeah, he's very expressive in a fun way. I'm having a lot of fun watching him. They're not loading him up with a bunch of dialogue, but what he does get, he he tailors very nicely and subtly. I like him, and I still don't believe he's a Klingon. <laughs> oh, man. If, he's, if he winds up being a Klingon, they, they will have an, a nigh-impossible task justifying that. <laughs> there is just no way. There's no way. I mean, let's uh, let's not uh, count our chickens before they're hatched, Adam. This could this could be one of the dumbest twists in television history. What they keep trying is to kind of beat Mud at his own game, and Mud is always a few steps ahead of them. Mud gets into the the secret like torture library that Lorca keeps and uh, finds all of Lorca's weapons. Mud goes there because he thinks the secret to the spore drive is in there, and he's he's sort of impressed to be led into uh, Lorca's menagerie, right? And and all that does is give give him more exotic ways to kill people, right? And uh, and the ways are are exotic indeed. Sometimes he's phasering people, sometimes he's beaming people into space, and uh, the the big one that we come to uh, see several times is. Lorca has these little glowy grapes that are weaponized dark matter that uh, I guess are the perfect amount of dark matter to take care of one person. It seems like uh, if your dark matter is lozenge-sized, <laughs> that's probably too much dark matter for, for taking out a single person. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know how it works. I'm sure that, uh, I'm sure that we'll hear from people on Twitter, but... Uh, well, what, what Mud tells us about how this works is that is, it is the most painful way to die. It's basically uh, every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light in the way that, that Egon Spangler would, would describe it. If that's true, though, how would they know? Like, you're gone before, like, before 10 seconds have elapsed. Here's the thing. If this is indeed the most painful way to die, it's got to be slower than how we see it. Because Mud wings one of these things at Ash Tyler during one of the time loops, and it eats him up in, I think, five seconds. A more painful way to die would be that same thing over the course of ten seconds, right? Right. <laughs> Why does it go so fast? It's the, it's the uh, ripping off the band-aid of world's most painful deaths. <laughs> the, uh, the version of this we don't see is the 45-second version of Ash Tyler just, like, screaming and screaming and screaming while everyone backs away and then finally turns around. Takes a single knuckle and bites it. Oh. <laughs> like, total bowel evacuation. <laughs> and then the bowel evacuation gets consumed. <laughs> But but the bowel evacuation gets consumed before you die, so you need, you get to experience that. 
the shame of that in front of everyone. Like, it works on an emotional level, too. Oh, I couldn't help it. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) They aren't going to show that on TV, even if it is pay. The mechanic that Harry Mudd is using to make this all work is that he has a time crystal. Is that what it's called? Temporal crystal? Yes. (laughs) Unfortunately, it is. Yeah. Uh, It's a non-equilibrial matter state. Yeah. And in parentheses, time crystal. They uh they definitely borrowed this from like a uh an SNES JRPG, I feel like. And uh he's got like a wristband, but then there's also like like the base station that provides the Wi-Fi signal for the wristband is uh in the spaceship that he is cleverly hidden inside the whale. So uh so they they're, they're kind of on to him. And yet, each time they, like, learn a new thing, they have to reset the the time loop because Harry Mudd will still be, you know, in the process of killing Ash Tyler or killing Lorca or doing something that makes the, you know, makes winning seem kind of bittersweet. So they want, like, a clean win, and they've got enough time loops to spare that uh, they're going to go for it. I don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> that was fairly comprehensive. What? 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 What's happening? What's all this? I'm trying to save you. What is this? One thing I'll say uh, about this episode, Adam, is that Seru does not get any fear boners at all, despite the fact that the ship is in constant danger and is getting blown up left and right. Man, I thought the same thing. Like... If you have fear ganglia, those things have got to be fully extended at all times during all time loops, right? Like bridal train level fear ganglia. Like he needs a crew member to like hold them up off the floor as he walks around the bridge. <laughs> I don't know that we'll ever have a better title than that. <laughs> Mud kills Ash Tyler in like the penultimate run through and uh, Stamets kind of like loses it and he's like, all right, I can't watch you kill any more people. Look at me, sure. Look at me, sure. I'm what makes the ship work. And so they offer him like a, they offer him a deal. Like Michael Burnham goes into the, into the ready room and she's like, dude, uh, you, you know everything about making this ship run, but you don't know who I am and you don't know how valuable I would be to the Klingons. I killed Takuvma. I'm what they really want in this war. And if you give me to them, they're going to give you a lot more money. But the price that I'm going to extract for that is that you have to go through this loop one more time and Ash Tyler gets to gets to walk away. And he's like, well, that's a fucking bullshit deal. And he said, well, uh, you got to make a choice, buddy. And she... And evaporates. I guess if... Uh, if Stamets had taken one of those lozenges, he would be in a position to say whether it is actually, in fact, a very painful death or not, right? Yeah. But Michael Burnham true. is not going to remember this. No. And they have a lot of fun with that, like the the coming death that they know is is meaningless. They like stop being worried about fireballs barreling down corridors at them and stuff. The thing is, like the form of death depicted here is still very painful. It's not like they, it's not like they cease to feel pain, right? 
which is weird. It's sort of a comment on how much they deem the pain of death being the knowledge of that death versus the... You know what I'm getting at here? There's like a psychosomatic aspect to the pain of death. And if you know that death is not permanent, then that aspect of it goes away. That is exactly what I was trying to say. <laughs> but yeah, like like I would have expected, you know, like the fireball is coming, Ben. Yeah. Like, the, and no one winces at the fireball ever. Michael Burnham, I believe, Stamets, I believe, everybody else, not so much. Because like, yeah. like Michael Burnham is a thousand percent bought into what Stamets is telling her by like round two of yeah. having been told. And Stamets knows that it's going to repeat. But everybody else is like a, you know, has not been through Vulcan logic training, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah, she's, she steeled herself against this. So in the last loop... Harry Mudd thinks he's got the advantage over everybody. And, uh, you know, he like saunters onto the bridge brimming with confidence and, uh, you know, doesn't really notice that the computer is talking in a little bit more stilted and incomplete sentences. Uh, and, and, you know, just keeps telling him uh, he's getting what he wants. And they make like a, a gentleman's deal, him and Lorca, that... He's going to take the ship, he's going to take Burnham, and he's going to take Stamets. Everybody else walks away safe, and uh, they go down to the transporter pad to meet the Klingon representatives that are going to come kick the tires on, on the ship and take it for a drive around the block, see if they want to commit to you know, the uh, low, low financing and $2,000 back at signing deal that he's offering. I've been looking at cars lately, so I've got lots of uh, car financing oh, information in my in my brain. <laughs> Lucky you. <sighs> Turns out, Adam, I can't afford a car, so it's all just uh, pissing in the wind. But uh, they get down to the transporter pad, and uh, and they kind of like turn the guns on him, and it is revealed that that and and I guess his his uh, his time looping wristband also evaporates for reasons. Um, <laughs> so. It's revealed that they have not, in fact, transmitted their coordinates to the Klingons, but his beloved Stella, who is the, like, lady that he tells everybody is his motivation in the world. Turns out he actually conned her dad out of a big pile of cash, and... Her dad being played by Earsat's John Lithgow? Yeah, that guy, like, man, what a miss that they didn't get Lithgow, right? How do you not get Lithgow for this? If fucking Orville can get Charlize Theron, you got to get Lithgow for Discovery, right? What kind of message are they sending to Lithgow through this casting? Yeah. Like, are they, did they cast this guy at Lithgow? <laughs> <laughs> like, fuck you, Lithgow. This is who we're going to cast. We, you turned us down. We're gonna, we're gonna get Airsats Lith, Lithgow. You charged us fifty thousand dollars for a, a a five line appearance. Fuck you, Lithgow. This guy'll do it for free. You're great and everything, John Lithgow, but you were also in Third Rock from the Sun. So chill out a little bit, okay? Hey, I love Third Rock from the Sun. Third Rock from the Sun's great, but it doesn't command a a <laughs> one episode asking price that he had to have asked yeah. in order to not get the part. Of uh, of 
Stella's dad. And if Lithgow d- turns you down, like French Stewart's available, he's picking up the phone, right? <laughs> French Stewart is very available. <laughs> <laughs> I guess basically the deal is that this guy has lots of money and is willing to make Harry Mudd's life easy so that Harry Mudd doesn't have to steal things from people. When did Star Trek turn into Dune? Because <laughs> the economy feels like it totally changed on the transporter pad here. Yeah. It doesn't seem like these people are Federation people. It seems like they beamed them in from TOS when the rest yeah. of this movie has been taking place in more of the TNG universe. Like, they're right. even in TOS-looking costumes. Yeah, that's really true. Like, right off the rack. I guess I need to fucking watch the... F- stupid Harry Mudd episode of TOS. Is that what I need to do? Oh, man. I really don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to either. My people were biologically determined for one purpose alone, to sense the coming of death. What? I have tried so many meal services over the years. After all, I am a podcast host. And I gotta tell you, Factor Meals is my favorite. Why? Because I can go from What am I going to have for dinner to eating a great dinner in exactly two minutes with Factor Meals? And don't sleep on their smoothies either. I got six of these in the box this week. Mango, tropical fruit, strawberry or banana. They're all amazing. They're like meal supplements I can enjoy while I'm on the go. Head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use the code trek50 to get 50% off. Again, that's the code TREK50 at factormeals.com slash TREK50 to get 50% off. What do you think of when you think of male grooming? Maybe it's a sharp haircut and a little bit of product. Or a bit of the old beard wax twisted into the ends of a mustache. Maybe it's a shower, a shave, a little spritz of fragrance. Me? I think of shaving my nuts. And not just my nuts, all around those nuts. I'm talking all around those nuts. And this form of male grooming is hard to do when your junk looks like a log of Play-Doh rolled through a dustpan in a barber shop. It's wrinkly, it's wriggly, nothing stays in place, and it's the one area where you don't want to have an accident. That's why I'm glad we're sponsored by the spring cleaning champions at Manscaped. They sent me their brand new lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It's their fifth generation trimmer featuring two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, a standard one for taking a little bit off the top, and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. They also sent me an extra-large Manscaped t-shirt, which I will never wear, but it was nice of them to do. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning. In your pants. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing, and wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. 
What? Hang on. Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. To sense the coming of death. This doesn't make any sense. I sense it coming now. None of it makes any sense. Sounds like nonsense to me. There's a little button on the episode where the uh, the newly honest with each other, Michael Burnham and Ash Tyler, know they like each other, know that they don't remember the first time they smooched, have an awkward, well, that was weird, on the elevator. Sort of a strange grief process for a thing that happened that they can't remember, but a thing that they hope will happen down the road. What a strange meta series of emotions here for them. I like it. I like that Star Trek can can have two characters with sexual tension and show you what it would be like if they had a slow dance to Al Green's uh, <laughs> Love and Happiness, but yeah. also maintain the fact that they like haven't uh, broken the seal yet. It's nice, too, to see the depiction of love's complications where the main problem is the inexperience of one of the parties. Yeah. Like so often it's like two space people who have been in love before, but they've been hurt. So they don't <laughs> want to get hurt again. This time, like Michael really doesn't know what she's doing and she's so capable in every other way. You know, Ash has got a lot of miles on her. You can just tell. Yeah. Look at him. City miles. <laughs> Real high traffic miles, Ben. You really don't want to buy a car when you're buying a car in LA with a lot of city miles. And uh he expresses to her that he's he's willing to wait this out. He's gonna he's gonna be a gentleman about things, and that's nice. He doesn't want to go straight to knocking boots, he wants to take it slow. Yeah. Did you like this episode, Ben? Hmm. <laughs> I liked the first half so much. And I am not sure how much I liked the second half. Um, and I think that the end was very dumb and bad. But it was also like dumb and bad in a corny Star Trek way that I guess I can get behind. I don't know. I, I have really a lot of mixed emotions about this one. Uh, maybe maybe this is the episode that I will wind up loving. But uh, hmm. but for now, I'm uh, I feel complicated about it. How about you? I feel largely the same way. I love I love every part of this episode up to the point where the, they get to the transporter pad. Like <laughs> this is the bad guy problem, right? The the heavy is smart enough to be a formidable enemy, but at the same time his goal is totally contradictory with the idea that he would be smart to begin with, like smart enough to be a formidable enemy. Yeah. And this whole idea of, of Harry being chased down by a jilted family, like, it's so lame. <laughs> it may be in keeping with Mud's true character, his, his, his TOS character. I don't know that. I haven't seen that episode. Yeah. But, like, 
if you have a chance to take some some written license with the universe, as they've done a bunch of times, why don't you bolt on a better backstory for Mud? Yeah, I mean, I also think that Stamets's flip and revealing himself to be the missing piece of the puzzle was a really weak moment in the episode. It was just like, ah, I can't watch you kill people anymore. You know, like, presumably he've watched, he's watched it dozens and dozens of times at this point. Like, the, the 79th time was, was one too many. It's not taking any other... It, like, there's no evidence of other emotional stress on Stamets, you know? He's getting more sane as the episode goes on, not less. I was also waiting for the moment that someone would say, we would rather blow up the ship and kill everyone than let Mud get the ship and lose the war for the Federation. Yeah. Like, no one ever made that comment. That choice is never brought up. And that seems like one of the first things that people should discuss once they realize that they're caught in this loop yeah. and that this is Mud's plan. I feel like Mud should have figured out that Stamets was the missing piece by like Stamets slipping up and revealing that he was wise to what was going on. I agree. I think for Stamets' actions in this episode to be perfect, as they are basically every time, sort of sets him up as that deus ex machina yeah. That that you hate so much. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan. Should we check to see if we have any Priority One messages, Adam? They won't ruin the end of this episode. <laughs> priority One message from Starfleet coming in on Secured Channel. Ben, our first Priority One message is of a commercial nature. Message goes like this. Help humanity invent isolinear chips so Jim Shimoda can stack them. Help us develop the technology to research more space buttholes so that Riker can... Never mind. Come to a slightly mathy, slightly nerdy trivia night from BEAM. Bridge to Enter, Advanced Mathematics, or BEAM is a non-profit, totally not in the pocket of Big Rod. And we train the next greatest generation of math nerds from underserved communities in New York City. Yes, coming to our trivia night will help bring us closer to the equal world of Trek. Just don't tell the kids about this ad. With a buffet dinner and open bar helping a great cause. More info at beammath.org. Ben, if only you were still still living in New York City, you could go to this. I would be all over this. Like, I fly on shit. This sounds great. It's like, uh, open bar and it's a good cause? What more could you want? Yeah, it sounds great. Adam, our second message is of a personal nature. It is from your girlfriend, do, and it is for Raz. Just kidding. It's for Tim. <laughs> That's a, actually what it's what is written in there, for who it's for, and it goes like this: Happy anniversary, Halloween, and USS Discovery Day, ten thirty-one, to my favorite boyfriendo. May we have many more years of morning coffee and cartoons, road trips. Ghost cats, starships in a bottle, beautiful recorder music, ice cream sandwiches, and reading nights. Thank you for making my life better every day. I love you, and I like you. Ah, Girlfriend you sounds like a real nice lady. I like you is, is the core component to I love you. Yeah. Tim, you sound like a lucky guy, and uh, happy anniversary and Halloween from us. Is... Is the Discovery NCC-1031, is that what that is? Sure is. Yeah, of course I knew that. (laughs) Got it cold. We'll know whether Rob 
wants to make us look like experts or not, based on how this episode gets edited. Well, Adam, uh, Rob is uh, getting paid to edit these episodes, and uh, maybe we'll even get paid too at some point for the greatest discovery. And one way we keep the uh, we keep Rob in podcast editing money is through the generous support of our listeners who go to uh, maximumfund.org slash jumbotron and get p1 messages it's 200 bucks for a commercial message and 100 bucks for a personal message and uh, it's a big help so thank you you don't need ersatz john lithgow money to buy a p1 message on our show <laughs> Starfleet doesn't fire first we have to we have to Starfleet doesn't fire first we have to we have to Hey, Ben. What's that, Adam? Did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda? Incredible. Drunk Shimoda. Man, I got to give it to Lorca. And uh, it was at first for being for having the most fun, but then later for being the most incongruous. Uh, there's a... Uh, there's a scene that we see twice where Seru is like is like updating the captain on the the space whale <laughs> and Larka asks him if the fish is aboard yet. <laughs> and uh and Seru does the nerdy correction that it's not technically a fish, which is uh which is a fun bit of writing. I like that Larka like that really paints Lorca as the thing that we've been talking about, which is a guy that kind of resents being on a nerdy science vessel. <laughs> but then that's all flipped on its head because we uh, we hear him describe the the room full of zoological curiosities and giant guns as his like personal research lab. So he's right, like like that. That was kind of a an ancillary lab i think we knew but i didn't realize that it was Lorca's personal lab yeah i mean the difference is the the type of science that the people on the discovery are doing are nerdy and the type of science that that Lorca's doing in his menagerie is like super metal science <laughs> <laughs> yeah so for being the metalist and also the silliest Lorca, uh you are my drunk shimoda for this episode adam did you have a drunk shimoda it is hard to choose against Harry Mudd in any episode that Harry Mudd is in. <laughs> but I'm going to go I'm gonna I'm gonna give my drunk Shimoda instead to to the purest distillation of the drunk Shimoda, the drunk at work Tilly, who during one of the later uh, <laughs> time loops has to go do science on the Gormagander in the in the shuttle bay clearly still a little tipsy still wearing her party clothes yeah and uh and just sort of uh wandering around tricordering this thing i mean she's she's actually drunk shimoda here she's lucky that thing didn't eat her i thought that was going to be one of the outcomes too from one of the time loops is this thing's leaning over and eating tilly yeah would have been fun what do we have coming up on the next episode ben well, the next episode is called Civis Possum Parabellum. Fuck you for correcting my Latin pronunciation. The little uh, sizzle reel that I saw kind of further compounded the problem with no fear ganglia in this episode, which is a bunch of 
Seru voiceover saying that this is the first time in his life he isn't feeling fear. So uh, Seru not feeling fear will be addressed in the next episode. We also got a little glimpse of Admiral Bob, who uh, was abducted very scarily at the last end of the last episode and was mentioned not once in this episode. So uh, we'll be catching up with Admiral Bob in this next ep, which has a Latin title that I am scared to pronounce. Yeah, man. Uh, Lorca's pretty cold-blooded for uh, not even thinking of Admiral Bob for an entire episode. <laughs> not top of mind. No. Then again, this episode all took place in the span of 30 minutes, so I guess he can be forgiven in that context. Guess so. I mean... He was like, he he was like, well, guys, Admiral Bob just got abducted. It's the next day. I know you're all feeling pretty bad, but we've got a party planned in 10 forward, so anybody that wants to cut loose like a deuce at uh, 0800 hours, come dress to impress. No hats, no jeans. Lorca could have disposed with Admiral Bob uh, far more efficiently if he just kept these dark matter lozenges in a little tin by the by the nightstand like uh morning after he's like hey uh you should have one of those cough drops make your throat feel really good (laughs) (laughs) problem solved well that'll be our next episode and uh we'll be back at you next time later guys the greatest discovery is a maximumfun.org podcast Hosted by Adam Pranica and Benjamin R. Harrison. Produced and edited by Rob Schulte. Music by Adam Ragusia. Head to MaximumFun.org donate to support the ongoing production of this show. Please use the hashtag GreatestGen when discussing the show on Twitter. You can find Ben on there at BenjaminAHR. And Adam is at CutForTime. And make sure to check out the Facebook and Reddit groups to continue the conversation. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.